Good morning. My name is Ian Hammond, and I'm your RUF campus minister at Northwestern University, where we welcome international students with hospitality, proclaim the gospel, and equip kingdom ambassadors. We've been there for six years now, serving and reaching out to the international community, which is made up about, of about 6,000 people from over 100 countries, and I always tell people I have the greatest job in the world, and I do, and so I want to say thank you so much uh, for your partnership in the gospel. Because of this church and the members here, we are able to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth right across the street. So thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you and to open up God's word with you this morning. We are in the book of Romans. And um, if you ask a Presbyterian minister, usually, if you ask him, what is your favorite book? So often you will hear the answer, the book of Romans. You can probably tell that Marshall loves this book. I love this book. And the reason we love the book of Romans is because probably unlike any other book in the Bible, it not only proclaims the gospel, it explains it to us in detail. But if we're honest, the reason we like this book so much largely has to do for the first 11 chapters, right? The rich theology of the first 11 chapters. But this morning we are in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 21. I invite you to open back up the Bible if you close it. I'd love for you to, to look along with me. In these verses, we seemingly move from the lofty theology and we get down to the nitty-gritty aspects of living as Christians in this world. In fact, the passage that was just read has 30 commands from the Apostle Paul. Now, it's important not to forget everything that's come before this. This is not Paul's Pharisaic legalism cropping back up in his apostolic mission. No, what we have here in these verses is an invitation, an invitation to live a life transformed by the power of the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's pray together and then we can dive in. Our great God in heaven, we ask that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to see and to have a saving understanding of these words that you have given to us. Exalt Jesus Christ, we pray, in our midst, for we ask this in his name. Amen. I remember the first time that I heard Rosaria Butterfield's conversion story. It's a remarkable story, so this is why I remember it, and maybe some of you are familiar with her story as well. But at, when I first heard this story, I was an aspiring pastor. What was so inspirational to me at the time about her story were the figures of Pastor Ken and his wife, Floyd. When Pastor Ken first met Rosaria Butterfield, she was a professor at Syracuse University. She was an English professor. And the way that Rosaria would have described herself at the time was that of a radical leftist professor in a committed lesbian relationship who had a very, very, very negative view towards Christians. She had such a negative view, in fact, that after she published a book aimed at getting her tenure, she turned her academic guns towards Christians and mostly towards the Bible that she believed had gotten everyone off track. And so her first offensive came in an article in the local newspaper and this article that she wrote generated lots and lots of responses. In fact, it generated so many responses that she had two boxes on either side of her desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. 
But as she dug through those letters, there was one letter that kind of defied her filing system. It was the letter from Pastor Ken of Syracuse Reformed and Presbyterian Church. It was a kind letter. It was an inquisitive letter. In the letter, Ken encouraged her to explore several questions, the kinds of questions that an English professor could appreciate. How did you arrive at your interpretation? How do you know that you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with the letter. In fact, he invited her to defend the beliefs that lay behind it. And so Rosira didn't know how to respond to this letter, so she just crumbled it up and threw it into the trash. But later in the night, she dug that letter out of the trash because Ken had invited her to dinner with his wife. And she thought, you know what, I'm going to go to this, go to this dinner. And she had a very clear motive in mind. She said, this is going to give me some good data for my research against Christians and the Bible. But Ken and Floyd defied her expectations of Christians. They, um, which were largely based on like protesters at pride events and political commentators on the TV, they actually became friends. They entered her world. They met her people. They had open and honest conversations about difficult topics. They did book exchanges. And for two years, Ken and Floyd brought the church to Rosaria when she would have not entered a church herself. When they ate together, Ken prayed. And his prayers were intimate. They were vulnerable. He thanked God for things. He confessed sin. Ken's God in, in Rosaria's eyes was holy and firm, but full of grace and mercy. She continued reading the Bible, Rosaria did, and on her own initiative, she started visiting the church that Ken pastored. And then in her own words, on one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church was there, Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck for me. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make my life right as well. I drank tentatively at first and then passionately from the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace and then in community and then in a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Now, I've never met Ken nor Floyd, but I have counted them as my role models for the Christian ministry. What does it look like to take seriously the first 11 chapters to the book of Romans, as well as the last chapters as well? To borrow some verses from last week, what does a body offered to God and a mind renewed by God look like in practice? In other words, what difference does the gospel actually make? Well, what we'll see this morning is that the gospel makes a difference. It makes a big difference. The gospel changes things. It changes the way we relate to ourselves. It changes the way we relate to our gifts, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and yes, even our enemies. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these four changes that the gospel brings. Ourselves, our gifts, our brothers and sisters, and our enemies. We'll spend the most time on this first point. First, 
The gospel changes the way we relate to ourselves. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter titled, The Greatest Sin. And in this chapter, he makes the argument that pride is the greatest of all sins. He writes, pride is essentially competitive, while other vices are competitive only by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having it more than the next person. We say people are proud of being rich or attractive or successful, but they're not, being, they're not proud of that. They are proud of being richer or more intelligent or more sex- successful or more attractive than others. It's the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. He further adds, it is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family, since the world began. You know, other vices sometimes bring people together. You can have friendliness and and good jokes among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. Pride is enmity. And not only does pride bring enmity between us fellow humans, it makes communion with God impossible. Lewis continues, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on people and on things, and as long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. And so it is no coincidence at the start of Paul's consideration of a life transformed by the gospel, he takes aim at pride. Pride is destructive to fellowship, and to be a Christian, we see in verses 4 and 5, means that we are a member of a body composed of many members and who are collectively together the body of Christ. And so if we are going to live this life of fellowship together, we have to change the way we relate to our very selves. Paul writes in verse 3 that you should not, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Now, it's important to know that pride can kind of look, it comes in like two different forms. It can either look like delusional arrogance on the one hand, or it can look like a deluded, delusional self-pity on the other. These are the two sides of the coin of pride. Pride, when you feel like you're doing great, looks like a, an inflated sense of self-importance. Pride, when you feel like you're doing poorly, looks like this defeated self-pity. And you know, the common thing that joins these two is a preoccupation with the self. Pride can look like the man who cannot stop talking about all of his accomplishments. But it also can look like the man who won't stop talking about all of his failures or faults or the fact that he's not getting enough recognition or opportunities that he deserves. Pride, both forms of pride, make us think that people are thinking, talking, or worrying about us more than they are. Both forms of pride can like suck the air out of the room and make every conversation revolve around oneself. And both versions of pride make us completely miserable. 
because pride ultimately is the fruit of idolatry. It's basing one's ultimate self-worth, self-status, a significance in something other than God. And so if it's beauty, you can look in the mirror, and when you feel beautiful, you are golden. But when you don't feel so beautiful, you are trash. Or maybe it's success. It could be success, and you are feeling successful. You are the master of the universe. But when you don't feel successful, you are a loser. And the frightening thing about pride we see in this passage is that our very religious life, our service, our giftedness, our righteousness can be a means of building up self and looking down on others. And so all of this means that the solution to thinking too highly of oneself cannot be just to think lowly. No, Paul says in verse 3, we must think with sober judgment. You know, to give yourself like a self-assessment in almost any area of life, you have to have like a measure of detachment. You have to relativize that area a little bit. Because if all that matters to you is that, I don't know, you're a good mother, when you look at yourself, you will tend to believe you are the greatest mother who ever lived and everyone needs to be like you. Or you may be the worst mother who ever lived. But what you will not be is sober-minded. Sober-mindedness gives us the ability to see ourselves accurately. It lowers, it lowers the stakes. It lowers the stakes. It helps us see where we're good. It helps us to see where, we're, where we can grow. And, you know, it doesn't even necessarily mean you're going to think less of yourself. But it does mean you will be thinking of yourself less. Now, doesn't that kind of sound wonderful? Freedom from pity, freedom from pride, freedom to look at yourself soberly, freedom to grow. How do we get that? How do we get there? Well, humility is how we get there, and the secret to humility comes in a little phrase at the end of verse 3. It says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, this is translation in the ESV. is a good translation, but I do think the New American Standard Bible helps us see something a little more clearly. It says, as God has assigned to each a measure of faith. And so our command in verse 3 is this. Think with sober judgment as God has assigned to each a measure of faith. Now, this is Paul's point. Recognizing that God has assigned to each a measure of faith is a barricade against pride. And this is the case for three reasons, briefly. Firstly, by saying we should judge ourselves by the measure of our faith, Paul turns pride, the logic of pride, upside down. Because what is faith? Faith is, faith is in, in essence, recognizing your complete an unqualified dependence upon God. Faith is an expression, it is a confession of your complete insufficiency before God. This is why Jesus in the Gospels, he says this very controversial thing. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul here is inviting us to a boasting of weakness. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not look like a strength you can boast in. It looks like the weakness 
of a child. We boast in the fact that we have nothing in and of ourselves to boast about before God. And in this way, Paul turns pride upside down and opens us up so we can look at ourselves from whatever angle soberly. Because this means that we are not ultimately judged on the basis of how good or gifted we are in any area of life. We simply ask ourselves, do I need Jesus? Is Jesus my only hope in life and death? Do I trust Jesus? And if you do trust him, the most important judgment there is, is settled. You are fully and finally declared righteous, accepted, bestowed with honor and love in the Son. And if this is true, if this is true, if God looks at you with the pleasure he looks at the Lord Jesus Christ, all those other assessments of life, they're important, but they become a little less important. Secondly, by making clear that the reason we have faith is due to God, Paul makes thinking too highly of oneself irrational. Faith is a gift from God. He says it has been assigned to us by God or given out by his grace. It is not earned or self-generated, and therefore it bears no reflection on your great ability or your moral excellence. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you have not received? And then if you have received it, why do you boast about yourself as if you had not received it? Pride is like boasting because uh, it's silly to boast because of something you received but did not earn. It's like boasting that you have air in your lungs. You did nothing to earn oxygen other than breathe it in as a gift of this planet. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Paul draws our attention to the fact that we are not the only ones to whom God has given faith. God has assigned to each a measure of faith. You know, pride is often rooted in this, um, this belief that you are something special. Life would not work out apart from you being at your best. This is, by the way, why we so often hear of great moral failings of leaders, both inside and outside the church. Pride leads you to believe you're something special. And then you think to yourself, I shouldn't have to follow the rules or I shouldn't have to face the consequences because what's going on here will fall apart without me. Pride also causes us to look at service in a very worldly way. You know, they say, you know, we'll say, if I'm not center stage, I am not important. But the Bible says the exact opposite about the church. The church is a body formed of many members who have different functions and yet all are essential to the proper functioning of the body. And so Paul in these verses completely reshapes our relationship to self. He says the most important thing about us is our faith in God. And this faith is a gift from God. And it is given to the entire body of believers. You see, the gospel of grace frees us from debilitating self-pity on the one hand and destructive arrogance on the other. It brings us low, saying to us that everything we have, every good thing we have, is a gift from God. 
It brings us high, saying that everything we have is a gift from the God who loves us so much that he gives to us his son and even the very faith to embrace him. All right, point two. The second thing that the gospel changes is our relationship to our gifts. I was talking with someone about ministry the other day, and there's something so commonplace that I think we miss its significance. What does Paul not say in verse 6? He does not say that we have talents that differ. He doesn't say talents, right? What does he say? He says gifts. Talents sound innate or cultivated or made by you. The Bible reframes our talents as gifts. Gifts are abilities given by God, exercised by faith in God, and used for the good of the people of God. And Paul teaches in verse 6 that everyone has gifts and we must use them. You know, the ideal church isn't one that has an expert staff that does everything efficiently, effectively, and um, excellently. No, the ideal church is one in which we as the body come together with our unique gifts and, and use them by faith in service to one another. Now, Paul gives a list of gifts in verses 6 to 8, and this isn't an exhaustive list. There are other lists in the New Testament that have different items in the list. But the the gifts that are included here basically fall into two categories. You have word gifts and you have deed gifts. And this fits the pattern of ministry we see in the Gospels. Jesus served in word and deed, and so is the church to do so after him. Now, we we all share various gifts in some measure, but those to whom God has given a greater measure are called to devote themselves to that gift area. Verse 7 says, if service, then serve. If teaching, then teach. Recall what happens in Acts chapter 6, right? The Jerusalem church is is prospering. People are coming to the Lord. It's growing. It's it's getting very big. And, And so, a matter of conflict arises in this church about the distribution of goods for the widows. And so as this conflict bubbles up, they decide that, you know what, we need to call in the apostles to address this conflict. And so what did the apostles say? They say this, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now they say this not to denigrate deed ministry in any way, but they recognized that they had a unique calling, namely prayer in the ministry of the word. And so they said to the church, pick out men from among you to take some responsibility. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have gifts from God. No one is giftless. No one is unimportant. No one is a mere spectator in the life of the church. You may have word gifts. You may have deed gifts. Whatever the case, you're called to use them for the good of the body. It may be in a formal capacity or maybe in an informal capacity. Maybe you need to volunteer with the youth to uh, impart wisdom to the upcoming generation. Maybe you need to volunteer in the children's ministry to pass on those vital stories of the faith. Maybe you need to reach out to a struggling grace group member to listen, to pray, to hope together. Maybe you need to volunteer in an outreach ministry of the church. 
Maybe you need to use the great resources that God has given you to serve the church in a greater way than ever before. Maybe you need to help with welcoming people into the sanctuary or setting up and taking down after church meetings. Maybe you need to serve on a committee to provide some administrative relief to the pastors. Or maybe, just maybe, the Lord is calling you to leave. To leave this church and to bring the gospel elsewhere. The church in the U.S. desperately needs pastors. The missionary, the world needs missionaries. I'm not sure what the Lord would have you to do, but I know he calls you to serve. For the Son of Man, when he came, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, point three. The gospel changes the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verses 9 through 13, Paul teaches that our love is to be genuine, zealous, and aggressive. Our love is to be genuine and that is to be done with gentleness and truth. Maybe unlike any other Christian doctrine during this polarized age, the doctrine of Christian love is most misunderstood. On one side of the spectrum, love is all gentleness and no truth. And on the other side of the spectrum, it's all truth and no gentleness. Love that is all gentleness and no truth tends to make us feel warm and good inside, makes us feel affirmed, but it blinds us often to our serious faults and sins which do harm to our lives and the lives of others. Love that is all truth and no gentleness will say it how it is, how it says it how it is, says it how it is, but we do so in a way that the other person feels attacked. And when you feel attacked, you feel incapable of change. But love that is gentle and true has the capacity to change us. This is the love of God who tells us the truth about ourselves and yet pursues us with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Our love is to be zealous. There is to be an element of competition in the body of Christ. It's the competition of not getting honor, but of giving honor. Verse 10, we are to outdo one another in giving honor. You know, we move towards one another, not thinking that other people are going to accommodate to us, but that we are going to accommodate to them. Among other things, this means that we will be incredibly difficult to offend. You know, being easily offended is an honor-seeking behavior. If you are easily offended, you are offended because you believe someone has stolen some kind of honor from you. But the gospel turns this on its head. It invites us to be more concerned about our neighbor's honor than we are our own. And is this not what Jesus Christ has done for us? He who was equal to God came to earth in the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, death upon a cross. The most shameful death in the ancient world. And he hung there full of shame in nakedness so that we might be clothed with the honor of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we do not have to defend our honor. God has bestowed upon us an honor that is indestructible, imperishable, and will never fade. Our love is to be aggressively hospitable, 
That's an interesting combination of words, right? Aggressive and hospitable. Um, <clears throat> the reason I put it this way is because I saw something very interesting in the text. In verse 13, it says, seek to show hospitality. And then in verse 14, it says, bless those who persecute you. And what's interesting is the words seek and persecute are the same exact word in the Greek. I think the word hunt probably captures both uses here. Hunt down opportunities to show hospitality and bless those who hunt you. And the idea is this. Do not wait for the obligation of hospitality to kind of be thrusted upon you, but rather be active, not passive. You know, when I decided to attend seminary uh, near to Hannah, who was my girlfriend at the time and, and now wife, uh, we decided since we were serious about one another, we should worship together. We should go to church. And so we started visiting churches in the area where we were. And one Sunday, we visited this small little church called St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. Uh, they were meeting in another church's building. It was a small church. The average age was much older than us. But the preaching was spectacular. And we ended up becoming, we ended up deciding to, to become members there, but uh, we didn't decide this because of the preaching, actually. There was a lot of good preaching in the area. In fact, we didn't decide this at all, basically, because at that first Sunday visit, we were invited by like multiple families to come to lunch with them in their homes after church, and so we couldn't say yes to everyone, and so we had to come back just to make good on the hospitality that was being offered to us. And at first, if I'm honest, I did not want to go. I told Hannah, I'm like, I don't want to go hang out with these people. I don't know these people. But by the end of it, I wanted to learn from them. Their their faith had some substance, it felt. They took seriously the call to Christian hospitality, and it was contagious. Now, if a hospitable culture is going to exist... You have to occupy both roles. There are two roles, right? Host and guest. And you have to be humble enough to occupy both of these. You have to be others-focused enough to, like, put yourself out there. Someone may say no. You have to be, be others-focused enough to put the comfort of others above your own. And you also have to be humble enough to be on the receiving end of service. Sometimes it's uncomfortable when someone is serving you. Practically, this means making and accepting invites, no matter how uncomfortable or how inconvenient it is at first. Because if you step out in faith, if you step out of yourselves and step out in faith, you will find that the alienation that characterizes this age can be undone by the practice of holy hospitality. Remember Jesus, when he came, he came eating and drinking with sinners just like us. Our fourth and final point is this. The gospel changes how we relate to our enemies. Maybe the most distinctly Christian thing a person could do is to love one's enemy. This is the most countercultural counsel that has ever been given in the history of the world, and it makes no sense at all apart from the central message of the gospel. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son.
Why else would you bless those who curse you other than the fact that Christ blessed us who cursed him? Why else would you not repay evil with evil other than the fact that Christ Jesus repaid our evil with good? The gospel completely reshapes our relationship to enemies. It takes vengeance out of our hands and places it into the hands of the living God. Jesus opened not his mouth to curse because he had entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. You know, the fact is that injustice may persist in this age, but justice in the end will win out. There will be a great day of judgment, and all the wrongs that have been done will be paid for, either by the person who committed them or by the Son of God who bore them upon the cross. In verse 21, it says, Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil by good. What does it look like to be overcome by evil? It looks like this. It looks like being consumed in the vicious cycle of returning evil for evil. Overcoming evil is by returning it with good. It is by putting your your daggers down and entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Will not the God of heaven and earth do right? He will. He will. He did it for Jesus so that in him he could do it for you. The fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose again for our everlasting life changes things. The gospel changes things. It changes the way we relate to ourselves, to our gifts, to our brothers and sisters, and yes, even to our enemies. The gospel changes everything. And if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel changes you. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, you have not left us alone in this world, but you have given to us your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, that these deep truths of the gospel will be driven down deep into our hearts so that we might live them out in our lives for the glory of Christ's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.